Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. While the city deals with a surge in COVID-19 cases, which at the time of this recording has actually started to get better and that makes me so happy, I'm re-releasing some of my favorite episodes from the first year of this show, just in case you missed them. Today's episode originally released in September of 2018, and it features Jody Thomas. Jody is an Amarillo native, a fifth-generation Texan, and a New York Times best-selling author. Since the success of her first novel in 1988, Jody has written more than 50 books. In fact, she's had several come out since we did this interview, including her 2020 Christmas anthology, The Cowboy Who Saved Christmas, and the novel Breakfast at the Honey Creek Cafe, which was published in May and is the first of a four-book series. To say Jody is prolific is to do disservice to the word prolific. She is just incredibly productive as a writer. Her work includes historical romances, contemporary romances, and mainstream women's fiction. She's a member of the Romance Writers of America Hall of Fame and has millions of books in print and readers worldwide. When we did this interview, she had just retired after serving for 15 years as the writer-in-residence at WT. It was so much fun to talk to Jody about her career, her writing process, and why living in this area and knowing the stories and history of the Texas Panhandle have been so central to her success. So here's Jody Thomas. Jody Thomas, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I definitely want to talk about uh, your career as a writer. I want to talk about the new book that you have coming out uh, in the next week or so. But before we do that, I'd like to talk a little bit about how you ended up in the Amarillo area and why you're still here in the Amarillo <laughs> area. So so tell me your story. Well, I grew up in Amarillo, went to uh, graduated from Caprock. My senior year at Caprock, I met Tom Kumalots, and it was love at first sight, of course. <laughs> and... Uh, I followed him to AC, and I followed him to Tech, and uh, then when we graduated, he had to go in the Army, and I came back to teach at Bowie Junior High Okay, and taught there while he was in the Army. And all that time, I was thinking that I someday I would be a writer. I loved teaching, uh, but it wasn't where I belonged. And I kept going back to school, getting more degrees, mm-hmm. thinking maybe I'd find my way. And I had de- declared candidacy for my uh, PhD in crisis counseling. In a class that was a great class, I started just writing a romance novel. <laughs> and by the end of the weekend, I had like three chapters written. And I get, came up to my professor and I said, you know, I don't think this is my path. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I never looked back. I dropped out of school, and I mean, I guess I could go back and get the last few classes, but um, and I started writing. Uh, then I was, like most writers, writing at night and teaching during the day. What were you teaching during that time? I taught home and family living. Still in middle school your no, entire career? No, uh, then or? taught home and family living at Amarillo High oh, Okay, for 14 years. While your husband was uh, in the military and you were traveling around, did you always intend to come back to Amarillo to stay here, or was there ever an idea that you might end up someplace else? We wanted to come back to Texas, and... Uh, uh, we applied for jobs when uh, when we got out of grad school in Austin and Houston and 
But once we start thinking we're going to have kids, we wanted to come back to Amarillo. Why we raise our kids. We wanted to raise our kids here because okay. I was raised here, and he was, his dad was in construction, so he left and came back, left and came back several times. So he knew Amarillo too. When you finally, you know, were in that class and you started writing those those chapters, was that something that you saw yourself doing as a kid? I mean, you were, were you a big reader? Were you always someone who found it easy to write? Most writers are. Most writers read before they start school and they read the library. And I was the exception. Um, I had a learning disability and I didn't read to the fourth grade. Okay. And then I went to a special summer school and they helped me learn to read. And it took me a few years to catch up, but the library became my home by junior high and uh, I was reading everything. And I think I wanted to write but I had this idea that I wanted to write, but I wasn't strong in English. English is my worst subject. Hmm. Even though I love books and even though I read all the time, it's hard for me. I'm a very creative speller. <laughs> <laughs> and once I, I apologized to my editor, when Spell Check uh, first came out, I just trusted it. And I had written something about the Apaches massacring the wa- wagon train, and Spelltrek corrected it to manicured. <laughs> so <laughs> They I, weren't known for their manicuring. <laughs> that's right. And my uh, editor stopped me whenever I was saying I was sorry, and she said, if I had your imagination, I would be a writer, not an editor. Hmm. I can correct your spelling. You write the stories. So tell me about beginning the process of writing that very first book. Did you already have a story in mind that that you wanted to tell and get to the end of, or was it something that you just had a scene in mind and, and started building from there? This uh, next book coming out is um, going to be my 50th book, mm-hmm. and I can tell you I start every book not having any idea where I'm going. So you're not like an intricate plotter and no. you're, you're building a big outline or anything like that? I do like it that. about a chapter ahead. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I'll write notes for what's happening down the road, but I actually don't know the end of the story till I hmm. write it. And a lot of some writers are like that. To me, I lose interest once I know. Um, it's not exciting. I want to see what happens. The best way I can explain how it works for me is I'm alone in my study and I decide I think I'll start a new book. Sometimes it it needs to start with a sense of place. Where are you? Are you in 1850 or you know where are you? Mm-hmm. And then I begin to meet a character. I begin to meet a person. It's like he sits down and he starts telling me his story. It's a very real thing that I'm meeting him, and he has secrets I don't know, and I have to try to figure them out. Hmm. And uh, it's a sloppy process because I end up throwing a lot of things away, but it's it's always interesting. I, they have me on a national deal of about writers that says, uh, I, I met some very interesting people as a writer, and some of them are real, and hmm. so some of them are not. <laughs> right. The process of writing your first book is one I'm interested in. I hear from a lot of people who, you know, tell me they want to write a book and ask, you know, how how can I do that? And I always tell them that the hardest part is actually to have written the book. Most people, a lot of people will start a book and never finish it. With your very first manuscript, 
you know, you were an unproven writer, you didn't have a reputation, you didn't have any sales, nobody knew you. How did you go through the process of finishing that story and, and driving yourself through the hard work? It took me two years, and uh, and I had a lot to learn. I had basically typing to learn, and there's just so much to learn in that first year of trying to put a book together and redoing it. And so it took me two years, and I don't, I don't know exactly how to tell how to tell you um, why I finished it. You know, only one in a hundred that starts a book finishes. I think it has something to do with a book that I'm going to write. And someday, it, the notes are upstairs in one of my, <laughs> in one of the little rooms. And uh, someday I'm going to write it, and it's called like, Rare Air. And I think writers develop in rare air. Hmm. Not pure air, but... If if you take, you know, the perfect little child and you give them the perfect little life and you uh, nothing bad ever happens to them and, and they have no exciting experiences or dangerous experiences or all that, uh, they won't develop as a writer. They'll be a very vanilla writer, hmm. you know. They'll just stay on one plane. But I think um, developing and part of my development was – uh, because of the reading problem, I had I, I had to push myself to stay up with people, to push myself to even graduate from high school. And I didn't catch up until really uh, college. I think I graduated on about the eighth grade level. And mm-hmm. then when I was paying for college, I thought, I better pay attention. And yeah. then all of a sudden, I never made a – I made straight A's. But I think that pushing yourself – if you study writers' lives, you see that they develop in rare air. Tell me when you realized that that you could be a writer full time, and and it it wouldn't just be something you're doing in addition to the classes right. that you're teaching. When did you make that decision? Uh, I was teaching in. I'd sold my third book, mm-hmm. and it had gone up for bids. They weren't exciting bids, but they were good bids. But that's yeah. where, you know, for people that don't know the writing world, that's where multiple publishers are interested in a manuscript. Right. And so they, they have sort of an auction type of thing to see who's going to pay the most for it. Right. So I knew I had, I knew then I could sell books because I had more than one house that wanted me. And uh, so when the book came out, it was getting ready to come out. My editor called and said, you're going to be a national bestseller. So I thought, oh, I'll be rich tomorrow, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I quit. I went in and told my principal that uh, I was quitting at semester. And he said, uh, I was afraid of that. My wife read both your other books. <laughs> so I quit, and the money didn't come in for a year. And I took out my retirement from teaching. Hmm. And uh, I just recently retired from being a writer in residence and. Uh, the person from the retirement plan said, aren't you sorry you took out your retirement? And I said, no, it's the smartest thing I did because it gave me that year to write. And I just immersed in writing. Uh, I studied every book that I could get my hands on on writing, and and I kept writing. And by that end of that year, I think I was a writer. I'd made myself into a writer. It's kind of hard. There's no road... There's no exact road to follow. That's what makes it hard. Mm-hmm. It's not like college where you can build the classes like bricks until you have the final product. Most of your books have been in the romance right. genre. I'm um, in the Hall of Fame in the romance. Now. Right. So tell me why that was the place you started. Was that because 
those were the books that you were reading at the time that you were interested in, or is that because that's the story that, that first came to mind? Well, in the 80s, uh, the romance genre had always been these little books that your mother got in the mail or right. she picked up on the newsstand, and they had never been that big. While everybody thought them as a little cottage industry, they were growing and growing and growing, and they were becoming a huge. And all of a sudden in the early 80s, they broke, and we had a, a books like Ashes in the Wind come out that changed everything because it was a national bestseller. It was number one for months, and romance writing came out of the closet, and, and the money was there. And I was right at that stage where I was trying to decide what to write. I loved reading those historical romances that were well-written, deep-plotted, mm. and I love the the history, and at that time you could walk in any bookstore and there was an entire row of historical romances, and I thought that would be the easiest place to break in. So it was a very calculated move that I started with uh, romance. Now I've switched. I wrote 22 historical romances and um, won Best Book of the Year three times and won a lot of awards. And then I really wanted to switch to a more mainstream women's fiction. But I I love both of them, yeah. I, you have to have a respect and a joy for what you write. Sure. Can Can you talk about the differences between those two genres for people that may not always think that there are certain rules for a romance book, certain rules for a historical mm-hmm. romance, for, right. you know, the more mainstream. What are some of the, the ways that those are different? There are about 50 different um, categories of romance. There's all different kinds. And uh, especially now with self-publishing, there's mm-hmm. even kinds that I've never heard of that have followings. And But it's, it's so vast, but basically to... The definition of it being a romance means it has to have a love story in it, and it can be a very innocent love story all the way to the, you know, not closing the door. Fifty Shades of Grey or something. <laughs> right. It can be all those levels. And also, to be classified as a romance, it has to have a happy ending. It has to have a satisfying ending. You can't kill the couple at the end. So really... Um, uh, Titanic was not <laughs> right. a love story. So one of the things I'd like to talk about, you, you mentioned the importance of a sense of place in your writing. And so many of your books have taken place in Texas or even in this area you know, with, with the history. Tell me why that's been such a focus of, of what you've written. I like to write books uh, where the town is almost a character. It's It plays an important role. Part, whether it's in uh, history or in present day, and how the town, how they feel about each other, how they react. And um, I've heard uh, some of the marketing people say that people like in New York or in the big cities, they love to read my books because it has that sense of home, that sense of comfort. When I was a little kid, uh, I used to go to Hollis, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and uh, I had six sets of aunts and uncles in Hollis, Oklahoma. And my uncle would, first morning I'd get there, he would have a horse in the backyard. And I was probably nine years old, and I had freedom to go anywhere in that town. Of course, I had to ride a horse everywhere, but uh, I felt safe there. 
I know it wasn't probably any safer than anywhere else, but with all of those aunts and uncles and and I would I just felt safe. And I wanted to write stories about how people help each other in towns and how they how they bond and how they do the right thing. We have that heart in Amarillo too. You know, I think people stop and help each other and, and it's real you know, it's nice. Even in urban areas, there's been a romance about the West, you know, just mm-hmm. this feeling of the wide open spaces and the rugged cowboys and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so that place, this place, appears in a lot of romance novels as, you know, in, in the larger genre. And uh, unfortunately, written by people who never come to right, Texas. Right, who don't know the place like you know it. <laughs> so that's that's uh, that's a problem. And I do research. Sometimes I get carried away with research, and I'll do more research. It takes me longer than to write the book. Uh, when I started Ransom Canyon, which is a series that is contemporary Western, it's modern day. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started it, I wanted to write about ranches in a circle, and I picked Ransom Canyon to be that place. But I didn't use any of the people in Ransom Canyon. But I went out to the Bright's Ranch, the Stanford Ranch, and I spent many days out there mm-hmm. watching exactly what ranching was. And it's so much different than sometimes you see in a book. <laughs> with you know, with the history that you've written about, um, you know, whether it's 19th century or, or whatever, you you know, we have a really good resource here in Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, which you know was attached to WT, where you were the writer in residence. Mm-hmm. I mean, did did you have opportunities to go through the archives there and, <laughs> and read you know the the letters from ranch owners and and that sort of thing to prepare. When I was uh, probably six or seven, my mother used to drop me off at the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, and I would walk around. By the time I was in junior high, I knew every single display there. And uh, by the time I was out of college, I was volunteering there. Hmm. And I was a docent there. And so I, yeah, I've yeah, been there a thousand times, many, many times. And I still do. Uh, I can walk through that place and ideas whisper to me from every corner. It's wonderful. You know, we talked about your your process where you don't really start with a, an outline or an intricate plot, but there is so much history in some of your, your books. And, and there's families and family trees and, and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. How do you... How do you keep up with all of these things that you know <laughs> spring from your mind, but needs you know some management, some administrative work? I figured it out when I started writing series. Uh, they first asked me to write trilogies, and my first trilogy was five books, and my second trilogy was four, and my third trilogy was like eight. And they said, "Stop calling them <laughs> trilogies." <laughs> That's not very good trilogies <laughs> if there's that many books. So uh, when I as I begin to write series. Uh, I needed to remember the people, and it was too big a project to keep in a notebook. And so we had a uh, we have a little room out back of our house, kind of out with a garage, and I covered it with whiteboards. And I begin right by the door, and I move all the way around the room, and I write family histories. I'm, I I have a board that has all the history of the area the down to the weather. Hmm. I have all the animals that live in that area plastered all over, including in the bathroom. There's all the animals. There's pictures of the place, 
like in Ransom Canyon, I had pictures of all the canyons around here. And by the time I finished the first book, I can sit down in that room and I am in that story. Mm-hmm. I, I just step into it. And sometimes my husband has to come get me because it's like I'm almost living there. and I don't realize what time it is. When, when you're in the middle of a book, um, you know, working on, say, that first draft of a manuscript, you know, for people that don't really understand what it's like to be a, a full-time writer, how many hours a day are you working on that? I mean, is it like going to a, an eight-to-five kind of job? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's the problem with writers. You don't do it for a living. You are a writer. And there's been many times, even last week, I, I say to my husband, uh, I can't step out. And we have to go someplace, and I, physically I am someplace, but my mind is still in yeah. the story. I don't step out of the story. And so I usually don't talk much or interact much because the story's still running. Uh, this weekend, starting Friday night, I probably worked from – nine o'clock till midnight every night till last night Hmm. and I was doing rewrites and I was going completely through the story as I went and it's not like work it's hard work but it's um it's like you're living it when when you finish that process when you finish uh, a book whether it's the rewrites or you know you get to that final stage in the manuscript how much of a break do you give yourself before you move on to the next one. I mean, 50 books in, <laughs> what, 30 years. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a lot of, of writing. Uh-huh. Do, you, do you say, okay, I'm going to take a, a month off and let my brain recharge? To- sometimes, sometimes. Usually um, I'm facing a deadline and planning the escape at the same time. And there have been times that um, Tom has almost poured me on a plane and we've disappeared for a month after I finished a book. And while I'm on vacation, I guess I do research sometimes and sometimes I just read two or three books a day and it's fun. But I remember once I was brain dead and we went to Alaska. I was so tired. I took a nap every day. So I thought the the, uh, cruise lasted a lot longer. I thought it lasted like Three weeks. 15 but, days instead yeah, of seven days. That's right, because I was always taking naps. But um, it's a kind of energy that you have to push yourself into in a story. You have to love it that most people would take medication to keep from getting hmm. <laughs> that kind of panic, manic. Tell me about continuing your career here in Amarillo. I mean, as, as a writer, you can live wherever you want to. You're right. not tied to a specific place. You know, you're... Your kids are grown, right. um, but you've stayed here for you know all these years. So why have you why have you made this area your home base? Um, I love Amarillo. I I consider it the center of the world because we're about a thousand miles from anywhere, you know, and it's fun. I don't have to live in a gated community. I don't people don't bother me. I mean, people knock on my door all the time, want me to sign their books, and that's fine. And people know where I live. For a long time, Hastings on Wolfland would point people in my direction, and and I don't, I'm not afraid of people. I mean, I took a walk yesterday, and people stopped me and talked to me, and I love that. I love the Four Seasons in Amarillo. I love the way the people are in Amarillo. I just, I've never tried to ride anywhere else, but I don't think I would want to. I, whenever I travel, I usually am just going to museums or. Next month, I'm going to go to 
Edgar Allan Poe's house. Oh, wow. For Halloween. <laughs> Ought to be some good inspiration there. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about your, your new book. You have a book coming out uh, this month. Yes, it's called Mistletoe Miracles, and it's the seventh in the Ransom Canyon series. And it's about a specific ranch. Uh, all, each of the books are about a ranch. And this one's about a ranch family that's third generation. And I see a lot of that. About third or fourth generation, they lose interest in ranching. Some of them do. And, and, right. it's, and so I wanted to take that idea. I wanted to write it. This one, because my last went so deep into characters, I wanted this to be kind of funny. And so I write it about three bachelors that have figured out that one of them's got to get married or the ranch isn't going to go on. And uh, I wrote it like um, a fast, fast ride, fast read. And uh, I really like the story. It happens over Christmas, and uh, the strongest scene in it is a fire scene. And explaining to um, people in New York how a horse reacts to a fire took a while. <laughs> <laughs> how how do you do that kind of in-depth research? I mean, are, are you going out and, and actually talking to cowboys or to, you know, people familiar with horses and, and getting some, like, expert type of advice on things like that? Yes. I'm also, now I use the internet a lot, too. Right. But, but you can't just go to Wikipedia and, no. you know, <laughs> how do horses respond to fire? I mean, it, right. it takes more than that. Right. And, uh, yes, I go out and talk to them. And sometimes they tell you little, the way they talk, a phrase they use. It's over and over again, I'm writing on everything I can find when I hear those phrases. Um, The way they think. Uh, A big surprise to me whenever I started doing research on ranches was how ranchers think of their land. They don't see themselves as the lord of the land or the boss so much. They see themselves as the caretaker. And that was really interesting. And they get just as involved as the cowboy does in in handling something. They're not just sitting and watching mm-hmm. if they're a real rancher. When you have a book like this one with mistletoe in the title and uh-huh. a Christmas setting, uh, do you worry that it's one of those books that will only sell well around the holiday season, or do you know that at this point all of your books are going to have the same kind of shelf life? Well, it's coming out in the end of September, so right. it's got plenty. So it's got a lot of time to, <laughs> to sit there. But uh, in a, an interesting thing happens in a series. Uh, when the next book comes out, people will find it and realize there's four six others, and they'll go back and they'll buy all of those. Mm-hmm. And maybe they'll buy them on Kindle instead of in paperback or hardback or whatever, but they'll buy all of them. And we're finding uh, a lot of people listen to the books, and they'll listen to one, and they'll order all of them. And when you start a series years ago, the best one was usually the first one, and then they kind of dribble down. Now it's the opposite. Now the last one will sell more than the first one. Hmm. And this first one's life is years because as long as you're writing that series, it just keeps bumping up. And that's fun. And a strange thing has happened. Uh, there are very few Western writers still writing Westerns. They're, I think it's going to make a, a comeback eventually. But a lot of those people that loved Westerns are moving to modern-day Western writers that are not writing Westerns. Okay. You know, they're riding the West is something that's really coming, becoming more and more popular. Yeah. I, I want to close by asking, you know, a question just about the industry specifically, because 
you know, we're at a point where more and more people, if they want to be writers, that door to get into the industry is a lot easier to open with self-publishing, with Kindle. You know, you've got so many people, for instance, in, in your genre, writing romance stuff that never would have gotten the attention of editors and agents 20 years ago. But we're also at a point where we, we think people are reading less and less. You know, they, mm-hmm. they can watch Netflix or they can be on Instagram or, or whatever. Do you still feel hopeful about writing as an art form, uh, about being able to continue to produce novels for people and stories for people? I mean, do you think that, is it on a downward trend or is it still an exciting <laughs> time to be a writer? Oh, I've thought I was dead so many times. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but when, when they first started eBooks, I thought, oh, all writers are going to starve now, you know. Mm-hmm. And turns out our sales on on paperbacks and hardbacks was were the same, but the ebooks were there rising too. And so it didn't hurt us. Self-publishing came came along. I thought, oh, I'm dead again. There nobody's going to nobody's going to do this and everybody that was self-publishing was saying, oh, I'm making 70% and what are you making? You know, I thought, oh, I'm going to be this is going to be the end of my career. No. It didn't work that way because what happened is the big houses got leaner. There were less of them. They got leaner and stronger. And uh, right now, HarperCollins is worldwide. There, my books come out in every country in every form. You know, I just got the Australian one of Mornings on Main. That was really funny. I can read it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I don't know why they called. They had to change too many words. <laughs> That's right. But, uh, so it's. I think it's the best time to be in because creativity is something that people crave. Uh, you love it when you read a book you haven't heard the plot before. You love it when you forget where you are when you're listening to a book. And, you know, I've I've had books that I was listening to on the road that I wouldn't even pull off. I wanted to go another hundred miles so I could read the rest, hear the rest of it. So people still are craving that. I think this is the best time to get into becoming a writer. But the advice I would do that I didn't practice right away, and I probably lost a year or two, is learn the craft first. Mm -hmm. Learn the craft and then step in. The market's wide open. This episode is sponsored by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You probably know Lazy Boy as a national brand. But some of its stores are independently owned and operated, and that includes the one in Amarillo. It's owned by the Hawkins family, who live here in town. Lazy Boy offers customizable furniture so you can design a look that fits you, with special financing and products to fit almost every budget. Almost everything they sell is American-made, and it's a lot more than just recliners. So visit Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings today at 3636 Sansi. Okay, we're back with Jody Thomas. Jody, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes thousands of maps, manuscripts, oral histories, and other documents related to this area. Learn more at panhandleplains.org. Um, so this is uh, this, this first one, first couple of questions I've not asked any other guests, um, but uh, specifically for you. Which of your books has been the most challenging for you to write? 
probably the widows of Wichita County. It was about the oil industry and an oil explosion that kills several men. And uh, I had, um, it took me two years to put that together. And I took a 16-foot wall in our house and put a paper on it and charted that all the characters and made sure it's worked. And I remember telling my husband, if I ever do multi-viewpoint again, shoot me. And Because you're writing from different perspectives. You had so many characters. Had, to- yes, and I had to change the way I write for each viewpoint. And, right. And uh, about a year later, I called Tom, and he, he was teaching at Tesco's, and I called him, and I said, lock up the guns because uh, I'm going to do it again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even have any guns. <laughs> but... I, now I write multi-viewpoint all the time, and I really like it. I like writing and seeing the scene from both characters that are in the in the room. But it stretches you as a, a writer and a storyteller. Yeah. Which of your books is most influenced by Amarillo or by this area, the Panhandle? I think all of them are. Uh, I think I like learning stories of what happened in Amarillo, and I put them in it. I put comments people make in Amarillo. I put sometimes the history of Amarillo mm-hmm. in. And I think the history of the Panhandle particularly. I spent one summer and went to every every museum, everything in the Panhandle, and it was very interesting, even just the roadside things. And we have a rich, rich history to pick from. What does this area have too much of? Um Construction cones, yeah. <laughs> definitely. That's legitimate. <laughs> yeah. I I think if you're not a local, it's hard to drive in Amarillo right now. What does this area not have enough of? Riders, definitely. I There are people here that could be great riders. But it's, it's hard because you have to become a rider before you make any money. Mm-hmm. And that makes it hard. Do you think that is, is that something unique? to this area, or is that the the world, the, the nation doesn't have enough writers? Do you think that's a, a more universal thing? I, I think there are a lot of people who th- who want to write a book, but they don't want to educate themselves on how the market works or anything. And that's dangerous because it becomes a hobby. Right. And, uh, and it's kind of hard. Uh, Nora Roberts said this in a speech once. She said, if you think of writing, publishing as a big swimming pool, there are some great swimmers in it, but there's a lot of people in there treading water hmm. that aren't going anywhere. And her comment was, get out of the water if you're not going not gonna to go full. And, and I think that's true. I think there are a lot of people that do it as a hobby. And that's great. If they want to write the family stories for their family and everything, that's great. But uh, writing is a career, and it takes as long to become a writer as it does any professional. What's your go-to local coffee shop? <laughs> you know, I go I go over here across from my office uh, to the palace a lot, but I'm going there t- today, in fact. But uh, I think we need a tea shop. Because my book next year is going to be The Best Little Tea Shop on Maine. Okay. <laughs> so I am really, I love teas. And so mo- a lot of the, the coffee shops sell tea, but you're uh-huh. thinking you want a place that's just dedicated to tea. That oh, definitely. has the, the nice little china you- cups and stuff like that. Is that yeah, what you want? Yeah, I would love that. Oh, that'd be fun. When was the last time you visited Paladero Canyon? I drive through Paladero Canyon probably every month. Um 
I take everybody that comes to visit me to Paladura Canyon. I took my editor uh, one year. She came out to meet me, and we drove through Paladura Canyon. She's a New Yorker, and uh, she loved it. She mm-hmm. thought it was beautiful. She just went crazy over it, and I said, you know, let's get out and walk. I can. I know everywhere around here. And she said, do I have to walk on dirt? And I said, yeah. It's not paved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, I don't like to walk on dirt. Wow. I had, I had to walk on dirt one time at camp. Okay. <laughs> so she wouldn't get out of the car. But uh-huh. other than that, I um, everybody loves Paladur Canyon. What's your favorite local restaurant? Uh, I like Liao's for Mexican food. I love Marazon's that uh, that we used to be down on Polk Street, mm-hmm. and then they moved out. Uh, I like it for uh, just home cooking. And then uh, this is a question I've, I've asked multiple guests to, to see if I can get you to admit to being in a certain camp or a certain team. <laughs> Pack-a-sack or toot and totem? Toot and totem. Why? I'm surprised I'm not drinking oh, why? a toot and totem cup right now. <laughs> you just looked at your Sonic cup. So. Yeah. Um, why toot and totem? Um, because they're everywhere and I can stop and uh, get a Coke. Okay. And that's what I do several times a day, it seems like. Well, Jody Thomas, thank you so much for being on Hey Amarillo. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It was fun. Good. <laughs> and that concludes the episode. Thanks to Jody for the original interview and for being cool with the re-release of her episode. You can learn more about her work at jodythomas.com and go grab those new books. I also want to say thanks to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Lazy Boy of Amarillo for sponsoring the show. Also, thank you for listening. This podcast exists every week because of listeners like you and because of the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Heyamarillo's executive producers include Barbara and Jim Witten, Griselda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Katie Linger, Jason Burr, Jess Heredia, Neil Nossiman, Joshua Rafe, and Ryan Pennington. This has been episode 176. My name is Jason Boyette. And I'll see you next week.